I'm Deborah J. Saunders, and this is Covering Trump. What was it like to cover President Donald Trump? Hi, I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal. I covered the Trump White House for four roller coaster years. My job wasn't simply to report on and write stories. To do that right, I had to master the logistics of the White House press team and the press corps. Episode 2, The Battle for Access, lays out how a regional reporter moved behind the big cable stars in the front rows to earn a seat and recognition in the most competitive territory in journalism. In the beginning, I spent as much time trying to figure out the mechanics of getting answers as to the answers themselves. My mission is to share with you the anguish, the drama, the logic, and the occasional magic of covering the 45th president from the back of the pack. I'll say it now, covering the White House was an honor and a privilege. It also feels much better in the rearview mirror. For me, it began with a question about the Oscars. Episode 2, The Battle for Access. The Las Vegas Review-Journal spent a lot of money for me to cover the White House. So part of my job was assuring my editors that I had the attention of the White House. In the beginning, that wasn't exactly true. Yes, I had written a usually conservative column for 24 years in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it was nationally syndicated through Creator Syndicate. I'd had solid sources in Washington for years. I regularly was invited to media Christmas parties when George W. Bush was president. But the Trump White House was staffed mainly by Trump loyalists, not old GOP press hands with whom I'd worked over the years. So what should have been a strong edge for me with any GOP administration wasn't. Since my storied career didn't help me with this crowd, I faced a challenge. Many of my competitors had formed relationships with Trump staffers during the 26th campaign. I had no such ties. I reached out to Hope Hicks during the presidential contest and never heard back. How could I compete with Network Wire and national newspaper reporters with gigantic audiences and existing relations with Team Trump? Actually, I wasn't really competing with the big shots who on the front rows, as much as hustling for occasional purchase, and that was a struggle. How to break through. I had been assigned to write about the Oscars, is then-host Jimmy Kimmel is from Las Vegas. During a February briefing, I had an idea. I sent an email to Sarah Sanders, then-deputy press secretary, telling her that I wanted to ask Sean Spicer if Trump would be watching the Oscars. Sanders passed a note to Spicer, who called my name. Meryl Streep had delivered a blistering Jeremiah against Trump at the Golden Globes. So I asked. Uh, with reference to that, Deborah Saunders. Hi. Um, the, um, the Oscars are Sunday night. Will the president be watching? Uh, if there's a Meryl Streep kind of moment, how do you think he'll react? And why, if this has happened at other award ceremonies, why do you think this happens? Why do I think, what happens? <laughs> actresses and actors like Meryl Streep? I, I have no idea. It's a free country. Um, I, I think Hollywood is known for being f rather far to the left um, in its opinions. And uh, i got to be honest with you, I think the president will be hosting the governor's ball that night. Uh, Mrs. Trump looks forward to putting on a phenomenal event. Uh, and the first lady's put a lot of time 
into this uh, event that's going to occur and welcoming our nation's governors to the Capitol. And I have a feeling that, that that's where the President and the First Lady are going to be focused on on Sunday night. And, uh, and so we'll go from there. Kellyanne Conway, who was sitting in the side seats reserved for staff, theatrically buried her head in her hands like it was the dumbest question ever asked in any White House. Afterward, Scones berated me in print and on social media for asking such a superficial question. And I get it. I could have asked about deeper issues, say health care, or the Muslim ban, or transgender bathroom policies, or micromanaging subcabinet staffing. All those subjects were question topics before I got in my question on February 22, 2017. But I truly doubt that I would have been called on for any of those questions, and I know this. I had jumped the hurdle. Not only that, the question and answer made news across America and in Australia and the United Kingdom. It made news because people were interested in what Trump might do ahead of the Oscars, so no regrets. My first challenge had been to get the attention of the press office. It's true, billionaire casino magnate Sheldon Adelson and his wife Miriam were Trump's biggest campaign donors, and they owned the Las Vegas Review-Journal. For that reason, some observers assumed the doors must have been wide open and rose petals were strewn on the walkways when the new Las Vegas Review-Journal White House correspondent showed up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That didn't happen. For one thing, the White House Correspondents Association decides who gets which, if any, seat in the briefing room and who has workspace on campus. Not Trump world. And that's a good thing. I know, most Americans hear the words White House Correspondents Association and instantly think of the annual dinner where press corps members come across as too chummy with the administration and awfully pleased with themselves as champions of the First Amendment. I get all that, but trust me, The White House Correspondents Association's most important role is that of gatekeeper. Without the WHCA, who would decide who has preferred access? Administration staffers, that's right, Trump aides or Biden aides would have full control over who gets a seat, which would not create fertile soil for challenging questions. Back to my situation. My editors and I wanted to signal that the RJ is an independent newspaper, not a Trump house organ, or an Adelson mouthpiece, as left-leaning critics maintained. There were competitors who were intent in seeing, well, collusion that did not exist. In 2017, Moment Magazine, a left-leaning Jewish publication, wrote a piece that claimed I had a one-on-one interview with Trump. The magazine had to run a correction, of course, because in 2017, there was no one-on-one interview. I told the author that I didn't have an interview. An exclusive interview never ran in the RJ. And still, the magazine got it wrong. I'm not saying I never dangled the Adelson card or that it never gave me an edge in the battle for access, because it helped. But I didn't feast off it. I wrote straight stories, not a steady diet of puff pieces that might have given me more access with Trump or his press team. The record shows no cakewalk. It took one month to get my first question in the briefing room. In four years, I sat in on two interviews in the Oval with other regional reporters in Trump. You'll hear all about it later on. Another misperception was that there was some kind of pipeline between the Adelsons and me. Wrong again. I got no marching orders. 
I usually learned what Sheldon was thinking about Trump when I read it in the New York Times. In fact, I did not meet Sheldon or Dr. Miriam Adelson until May 2018, when I was in Jerusalem covering the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Israel. I saw them at a reception the evening before the ceremony and introduced myself. Fun fact, my father worked for one of Sheldon's early ventures in the 1980s, a venture that went nowhere. My father taught me how to pronounce the Adelson name correctly. My father was the topic of our small talk when we met. One thing we did not discuss, Sheldon laid off my father and everyone he worked with because the venture failed. It was nothing personal. Here's something that drove me nuts. Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Nothing to see here. Presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg founded Bloomberg, which covered the 2020 presidential campaign as he ran for the Oval. Where was the outrage? Nowhere. But when conservative billionaires bought a Nevada newspaper, alarms sounded. Media critics seemed to think the Adelsons were wrong to buy a newspaper, as if the Adelsons' purchase was off-limits. The Adelsons sunk a lot of money into a newsroom that proclaimed its independence at every turn. The newly invigorated paper reopened bureaus in Washington and Carson City. And somehow, rivals tried to frame the Adelsons' foray into Las Vegas journalism as a bad thing. When COVID hit, the Adelsons didn't lay off anyone from the paper or the Venetian. They weren't cartoon villains. Their generosity kept Las Vegas in bright lights for good newspaper reading. Right after the break, I'll tell you how I became the oldest cub reporter in the White House press corps. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is constantly finding new ways to fail and then blaming others for it, except when it is intentionally failing on issues like the border and energy policy. Well, we're not going to let them get away with that. I'm Greg Columbus. Join Jim Garrity of National Review and me each weekday for the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll give you the good, bad, and crazy news of the day and lots of laughs, too. Find us right here on the Ricochet Audio Network at ricochet.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe this is a good place to insert the Cinderella part of this story, how I became a White House correspondent. This part starts the day after the November 2016 election. I quit my job as a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. I had been the token conservative on the paper's opinion pages for 24 years. People often ask me how I lasted all those years in an ultra-liberal environment. My standard answer was, I don't know. I just do. But in 2015, I came to believe I would not be able to continue with the independence I had enjoyed. I did not want to end my career on a bitter note. I also didn't want to miss the 2016 election, and I didn't want to spend the campaign season scrambling for a job. My husband Wesley and I came up with a plan. I'd give it a year and see if things improved. If not, I'd give notice the day after the election and leave in early December. Point of pride here. I stuck to the plan. I quit that job with panache. I had a smile on my face and joy in my heart. I had left on my own terms. What were my plans, colleagues asked. I told them I had no idea what I'd do next. I might semi-retire, maybe get a writing job, or maybe try something different like consulting. Maybe we'd stay in California, or maybe we'd move to the East Coast where I grew up. Washington might be nice, and the capital seemed like the most likely East Coast city with a job for me. As 
as my last day neared, I sent an email to Frank Vega, the former Chronicle publisher, whose very presence had protected me from hostile forces at 901 Mission Street. At the time, Frank was advising the Adelsons, after they miffed their purchase of the Review Journal, by trying to buy the paper in secret. Frank is not the bow-tie-wearing stereotype of a publisher. Newspaper legend Al Newharth once called him a tough-talking circulation street fighter. In the email, I told Frank I would be in the job market soon. Frank wrote back and told me to telephone him ASAP. I did. Frank had approached me before about working for the RJ. He did so again. I told Frank if I moved, which seemed likely, I wanted to move to the East Coast and be closer to my family. Where would you like to live, Frank asked. Washington would be great, I said. But I knew the paper had just opened a DC bureau and hired veteran journalist Gary Martin to staff it. So an opening at the RJ didn't seem likely. Oh my God, Frank told me, we just decided to create another new position, White House correspondent. That has to be you. But I'd never been a reporter before, I said. Frank assured me I'd be great. I wasn't so sure. But really, I had been given a ticket to cover the biggest story of my lifetime. How could I not say yes? What's more, the paper wanted me to write a weekly column so I would work in both worlds, straight reporting and opinion. Within a month, I was in Washington. There are 49 seats in the James S. Brady briefing room, and many more people who want into the room, or better yet, want a seat in the room. I did not have one of those seats. I tried to push press secretary Sean Spicer for a seat, but he responded that the White House Correspondents Association decides. Pressure from the mothership was relentless. My editors wanted to know, why didn't I have a seat? When would I get one? When would I get a desk in the press work area? I did not have a good answer. So I'll tell you the not good answer. Because there are more people who want seats than seats, the WHCA divvies up which members get seats based mostly on the size of the outlets. The bigger the outlet, the better the seat. By the time I showed up, the association already had allocated seats which meant I'd have to give the WHCA reason to accommodate me in the future. Meanwhile, I stood in the aisles. Brian Karam, then with Playboy, dubbed us standing journos, the aisle people, and he designated me prime minister of the aisle people, a fun honorific for a group low on the totem pole. We'd arrive an hour early before the briefing was scheduled, stand through the long delays, swap war stories, test drive questions, privately assess others' hygiene, and look longingly at colleagues who were able to work on their laptops in the coveted seats right up to showtime. We traded strategies to garner attention, like, if you wear bright colors, will Spicer be more likely to call on you? Verdict unclear. Lots of women were wearing jewel tones at the time, especially the TV folks. At first, the room was packed to the gills, but over time, more reporters chose to watch the briefings on TV so they could file their stories more quickly. We aisle people kept track of who was not around and warmed the seats of those absents. If the seat holder showed up, we moved back to the aisle. Over time, some colleagues who couldn't make it to the briefing on a particular day would email me and offer me their seat. I not only joined the WHCA, I also joined the Regional Reporters Association, which had access to a seat that was rotated among members. So, I got a seat. Eventually, I earned a seat for the Las Vegas Review-Journal on rotation. White House staff paid attention to which press showed up, which reporters participated in conference calls, 
and how hard we worked to get stories. As a way to get into the West Wing, I decided to join the pool. The pool is a term for a rump of reporters who cover events for the entire press corps. You see, there isn't room for the entire press corps to cover the president in the Oval Office or on the road. Instead, a smaller group of reporters, photographers, and cameramen cover events for the rest of the press. Those on the list to receive pool reports can use pool report content as if it is the result of their own personal reporting. They say the term pool comes from the location of the press workspace. It's where the White House swimming pool used to be. It was a strategic decision to pool, requiring a considerable time commitment and the development of skills and speed I hadn't needed before. To qualify for the presidential pool, first I had to try out by pooling meetings of non-presidential events, conferences in the executive office building, or events where First Lady Melania Trump or Vice President Mike Pence served as headliners. Pool reports are supposed to provide color. What color tie did the president wear? When Air Force One landed, who was there to greet POTUS? Did he shake hands with anyone? With whom and how many times? I never really cared about those details before, but they convey the sense of being there. And being there was the whole point. As pooler, I was entitled to push my way into a good spot in the scrum so I could see everything. That was the idea anyway. But when you are competing with cameras for a good spot, it's pretty much every man for himself. On days when nothing happened, the pooler might file one report. For example, on a Sunday, when the pooler learned there would be no public events, the pooler could announce a travel photo lid at the time it was issued, which meant there'd be no public appearances for the rest of the day. A pool spray is the term for when the pool is brought in to see the president and visitors. It's also an opportunity to shout questions. On fast-moving days, you might file 20 reports ahead of the release of official transcripts. The White House staffers who managed and escorted the pool into the Oval Office were known as Wranglers. The Wranglers are the folks you hear trying to cut off press questions tossed at the president in the Oval Office. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. When you were in the pool, you work for the pool first and foremost. Your job is to convey what is happening to your colleagues, many of whom are cranking out stories on the news of the day, and get out any quotes likely to make news in real time. Don't miss the big news. Bang out short reports if there is a money quote, because the print folks do not want to be scooped by the TV pool. Don't wait to file a full report. Don't make mistakes. You've seen reporters shouting questions at the president on his way to or from Marine One. You don't have to be in the pool to participate in departures and arrivals. You only need to have the right credentials and clearance. I participated in departures and arrivals only when I was a print pooler because I had to. Otherwise, I watch on video afterward because it was really hard to understand Trump over the helicopter noise. There is an in-town pool with a rotating schedule for participating outlets. I'd usually pool in-town once a month. The out-of-town pool covered travel with the president on Air Force One on foreign and domestic trips. I served on the travel pool only on occasion. Being a regular travel pooler entails a big money commitment as news outlets pay for their share of travel on Air Force One, as well as a big time commitment which I, as a one-person bureau, could not meet. 
On most days when I was the in-town print pooler, I did not write stories because pooling was all-consuming. The pool comes first. It's the law. WHCA leaders held tutorials about how to pool because mistakes come at a cost. There's a story you may have heard about Zeke Miller, who then was working for Time magazine and was in the pool on Inauguration Day 2017. Zeke erroneously tweeted that Martin Luther King's bust had been removed from the Oval Office. While he did not send out a pool report about the MLK bust, his observation made it into the official pool report written by another reporter. And it was wrong. As soon as he learned of his mistake, Zeke corrected the record, took responsibility, tweeted that he was wrong, and sincerely apologized. He also explained that the MLK bust probably had been obscured by a door in security. Sean Spicer publicly accepted Zeke Miller's apology, but he liked to cite it as proof of the press corps' liberal bias. I was petrified I would screw up. My biggest fear was that one day Trump would spend 90 minutes ranting in the Oval Office during a pool's break, and I'd be standing there in my 60-something body, typing the most newsworthy quotes and sending out pool reports on my phone while recording the exchange. Stressful? Let me tell you about the first time I pooled POTUS. It was February 2018. The first event open to the pool involved a Trump meeting in the Oval Office with dissidents who had escaped from North Korea. The news of the day, however, was a leaked memo written by California Republican Congressman Devin Nunes. The memo was highly critical of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein for his role in approving surveillance of Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. That's what many of the pool's questions were about. When the president thanked the press, a cue for us to leave the room, I did something really stupid. Thank you very much. I actually left the room. Meanwhile, the rest of the pool had stayed and shouted questions, secure in the likelihood Trump would continue to respond even after he signaled we should leave. I quickly realized my error and returned to the Oval. I didn't think I'd missed anything important when I filed my report. But then Steve Holland, the courtly Reuters reporter, sidled up to my desk and suggested that I write a follow-up report on the exchange I only have caught. Steve shared his notes. I filed a follow-up report that Trump answered the question on Rosenstein saying, you figure that one out. I added Trump punted on a query about the Super Bowl. Then the pool was off in a motorcade headed to Sterling, Virginia for a border security roundtable. An observation about presidential motorcades. Street traffic already is cleared, so there's no reason to slow down. There's no stopping for red lights. You shouldn't eat a big breakfast. As I was filing a report after the Sterling Roundtable, I became aware that there was a dispute among reporters still at the White House as to which question Trump had answered. The Rosenstein question or the Super Bowl question? I was confident in Holland's take, but had to double-check in order to make sure the record was clean. From the motorcade, Ace Radio reporter Bob Constantini queued up his audio, and it turned out, as I expected, Steve Holland had it right. We were okay, but it didn't look good to have my first pool report questioned. In May 2019, I was the print pooler in the Oval when Trump was asked if he discussed the Mueller report during a phone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Report with Mr. Putin today. We discussed it. He actually uh, sort of smiled when he said uh, something to the effect that 
It started off as a mountain and it ended up being a mouse. But he knew- I got the quote out right after Trump said it. I immediately got emails from colleagues asking about Putin smiling. Did I have it right? How could Trump know? Was it a video call? I went to the press office for clarification. Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley confirmed I had it right and explained Trump meant to convey that Putin sort of chuckled. I quickly filed a report to clarify. That's pooling. Everything you do or don't do is under a microscope. When I started the job, I didn't realize how physically grueling covering a White House can be. On Inauguration Day 2021, I filed three stories and walked nine miles with a laptop on my back. Inauguration Day security had shut down Washington traffic. There was no way to get near the White House, so I got up around 5 a.m. and took the metro to Foggy Bottom, walked about a mile to the White House with my laptop and iPad in a backpack as I went through multiple security checks. I also had to go the long way when moving from the White House to our bureau in the press club. The next day, the first full day of the Biden administration, I had to walk through the same gauntlet, and I was the print pooler. I had to correct my pool reports twice. Biden's first event on the schedule occurred in the East Wing's Blue Room. That's what the White House said in a press advisory, but since I was there, I should have noted the event was in the state dining room. Correction number one. Also, I reported that Patti LaBelle sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic. A colleague set me straight. Yes, I will never hear the end of this, I wrote in the second correction of the day. Cooler got it wrong. Patti LaBelle sang National Anthem. To my surprise, I was spared the razzing dished out to Zeke Miller. To my knowledge, no one gave me a hard time on social media. Even though pool reports are widely distributed, I think everyone was pretty much worn to the bone by then, including our most eager critics. Thanks for listening. I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal and fellow at the Discovery Institute. Next, Episode 3, Trump Talk, Tweets, and Turnover. We'll revisit American Carnage, inauguration crowd size. It was the biggest. And Flash Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci's X-rated chat with a reporter. Yes, there will be what they call adult language even if there were few adults. Plus, Trump's winning comm strategy. Make a wild claim, write out ridicule, then wait for chatter in class to translate what Trump really meant to say. I can say this much. While more than 90% of Trump's A-team didn't make it to the final day, I survived. You know what I learned? Not everything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This podcast was produced by Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. I want to thank the Las Vegas Review-Journal and C-SPAN for material cited in this podcast. Mm-hmm.